Hello and welcome to Chamber Talk, a new podcast brought to you by Aberdeen and Grampian Chamber of Commerce. I'm your host, Finlay Jack, and today I'm joined by the Policy Director at the Chamber, Ryan Crichton. And for our very first episode, we are thrilled to be welcoming Scotland's First Minister, Hamza Yousaf. Thank you for joining me, Ryan and uh, First Minister. Um, Hamza, we'll, we'll just get straight into it, really. You've been in your role as First Minister for nearly a year now, I think about 10 months or so. Um, have you been surprised by the challenges presented to you by that role? There's been plenty. We'll get more in depth in some of them later. But has it been much of a, a shock to the system? I think it's fair to say it has been an eventful 10 months. <laughs> um, I think nobody could suggest otherwise. Uh, yes and no. And I'm sorry, that is the uh, typical politician's answer. But when you go for first minister, and I you know, thought about, do I go for it, not go for it after Nicola's resignation? The one thing that's a dead certainty is there will be stress, if not every day of the week, then certainly multiple times throughout the week. And you've just got to take that and bank that as being part of the job. But I could not uh, have envisaged what would have happened, particularly in the first few months of my uh, my, 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 my role as First Minister. I could not have imagined uh, what we would have seen in relation to the police investigation and, and, and other such things. So that, that was really challenging and continues to be to be difficult. So yes, definitely um, a challenging uh, 10 months, but a massively and hugely enjoyable 10 months. You don't get to be the first minister of the country you love, the country you call home. Uh, often I think you get one chance at it uh, and you've got to really, I think, enjoy the job as much as, uh, of course, uh, deal with uh, what are the challenging aspects of it too. Mm -hmm. And of course, we'll talk about these more in depth um, later on in the episode, but let's just turn the clock back a few decades briefly. Uh, at what age, at what moment did you realise that politics was going to be the career for you? That's a really good question. Um, and, and I suppose it is uh, somewhat relevant, actually, to what's happening in the world today. So for me, um, I was uh, really uh, always, I think, in my, my head, I was going to go into law when I was younger because, um, you know, being from the background in terms of being a Scottish uh, Pakistani, South Asian, uh, my parents were always wanting me to either be a doctor, dentist, lawyer, pharmacist, or accountant. That was, and my dad's an accountant. Those are the five careers. You've got to choose one of those five. And uh, I thought to myself, I'm, I'm, I'm decent at English and some of the other subjects. Science didn't really appeal to me when I was younger. So I thought, okay, I, I think law is the one, one for me. And I remember filling out the UCAS form, and I think you've you got five options. <clears throat> at the time and most of them were law and then the last one I snuck in politics because I began to get interested in politics and uh, I got into politics I got into law as well and I had to make that choice and it probably was um, to this day the most frightening conversation that I had to have with my parents when I told them I wanted to do, to do politics over law but they were great about it especially my dad um, he was like look we need more people like us you know, people of colour, we need more Muslims, we need people that are different in politics. My dad was hugely political. Um, my mum, she was really encouraging, but a bit more of the kind of <laughs> law, maybe, son, uh, <laughs> as well as, as as well as considering politics. But, but, but for me, uh, the moment, um, the really pivotal moment in my life came uh, in 9-11, uh, the days after 9-11. Uh, I was 16 years old when 9-11 took place. And... Uh, I had never thought about politics, but I remember the day after 9-11, I think 9-11 was a Tuesday, the day after that, the Wednesday morning, going into school and getting bombarded with questions about, do you know who did this? Do you know who was behind it? You know, why do Muslims hate America? And I'm sitting there like a 16-year-old boy going, we were just talking about the football the day before and all the other things that teenage teenagers talk about and, and you know, suddenly get bombarded. And I thought to myself, I've got to get a bit clued up in the world. Started, I remember that night and watching the news, 10 o'clock news with my dad. And usually my dad watched 10 o'clock news and I'd go you know, up to my room or uh, in the kitchen or, or on the computer. But this time I watched the news with him and I thought, I've got to get educated and really opened up a whole uh, world of politics uh, to me and uh, then you know got involved in the various different kind of anti-war movements, uh, particularly in relation to the, the, the Iraq war thereafter and uh, really sparked my political interest from there. And was your political journey straight to the Scottish National Party, or did you...? No, it was. It was. Um, but interestingly, so my, in my household, uh, not untypical, actually, I'm sure, of many households, my mother was diehard Labour, and my dad was diehard SNP. 
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you'd have the S&P post on the upstairs window, <laughs> election time, the Labour post on the downstairs window. And the turning point for my mum came uh, post-Iraq war. She she, she just uh, completely switched to, to the SNP. And dad never pushed it down her throat, but he was, my dad actually in some sense was a real pioneer. Um, he was the first, uh, certainly he claims anyway, he was the first um, uh, Asian member of the SNP in Glasgow. And at that point, it was it was a real it was really uh, quite a move. You were really out there if you supported the SNP as somebody with South Asian because the natural party for immigrants like my father, my grandfather, the natural party was a Labour Party for the party of immigrants. And um, actually the SNP, they were told all sorts of rumours and, and innuendos about the SNP that the SNP was you know, effectively the, the national front. They were a racist party, a far-right party. Couldn't be further from the truth. So my dad joined. So he, he was very political. And for me, uh, the journey to the SNP uh, was just natural. It came from, you know, my belief, having been involved in, in particular, the anti-war movements around the Iraq war in particular, also being interested in foreign policy as I was, and, and continue to be, of course, but as I was back then, uh, when I heard, uh, it was a speech by Alex Salmond actually in the House of Commons about the Iraq war, and I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense. If, if this country, Scotland, is opposed to the war, I'd been on many demonstrations where I'd seen that very visible opposition, then why are our sons and daughters being sent to that war? And, and it was a very powerful speech, not just by Salmon, but by uh, one of the demonstrations a woman called uh, Rose Gentle, whose son, Gordon Gentle, sadly died uh, in Iraq. Um, and she, she became a real uh, figurehead as part of the anti-war movement. I thought to myself, yeah, well, I, I believe Scotland should be making these des- decisions for, the, for itself and for herself. And yeah, it was a natural to the to the SNP. Hey, your first job in politics, um, certainly after university, would have came when you were working for um, the late MSP Bashir mm. Ahmad. Um, I, I've heard you speak about him a number of times quite candidly. He was a, a bit of a role model mm. to you, I guess. Um, you worked with him, uh, for him really, for, for two years or so before he sadly passed. That must have been, a, I guess, a difficult time to lose such a, a huge figure and, I guess, a role model in your life, perhaps somebody that, that really helped you get into politics too. Yeah, and look, I've known Bashir since I was born, the day I was born. Um, he was a friend of my father's. Uh, we used to call him uh, Chacham, which translates into Uncle Mango, because he used to bring these boxes of mangoes, Pakistani mangoes, um, all the time. Uh, when it was mango season in Pakistan, he'd come with these big, giant boxes of mangoes, and we'd love it when he'd come round. And and he was a great friend of the families, and and uh, you know he helped me uh, to get an internship in the northeast. Actually, uh, when I was interested in politics, uh, he guided me towards uh, the SNP. And then, you know, just as a kind of matter of fact, when, when it was um, polling day 2007, um, I, I was actually my last exam in university. So I was, just came straight out of the US politics exam, straight onto a polling station. And the next day, if you remember 2007, there was an issue around the electronic counting. And we got the vote the next day. And uh, it would be evident that Bashir had been elected as well. And it's just a matter of fact, he said to me, just remember, we start work on the Monday. <laughs> And uh, I said to him, actually, I've got another job. <laughs> and he said to me, you don't. <laughs> and I said, look, that's that, that's, that's that done. And actually, uh, my predecessor, Nicola, came to speak to me about it as well. And, uh, you know, I didn't need much convincing, to be honest, to let the other opportunity go. Um, and it was huge when he passed away. And I think it's one of those ones where I think in our lives, we can often have role models that we don't actually know are role models. So they're teaching us day by day, and we don't even know we're being taught. Uh, but he was just such a nice, I mean, it's hard, I've got so many stories of how nice a man uh, he was. And one, one of the things I'll never forget is that, you know, there we were, he and I, we both entered the parliament at the same time, me as researcher, him as a member of Scottish parliament. We were finding our feet, um, you know, and, and, and trying to work our way around the place. And I remember walking with him and another uh, colleague of ours had been in the parliament for, for a number of terms before us stopped and said to uh, Bashir, oh, Bashir, is that, your, is that your boy? He's just made an assumption. Is that your son? And I was about to come in and say, no, I'm, is, um, I work for him. And he grabbed me by the hand and he said, yeah, that's my son. <laughs> and I thought, oh, you know what? That is the mark of the man. He was just a nice, gentle soul. He was also very, very sharp politically, um, but, you know, a lovely man. So it was really tough to lose him. But, you know, at the same time, uh, definitely uh, a lot of lessons I learned from him without him having to sit me down and say, let me teach you. I think I'm too sunny about politics, actually. He just taught me every day through his character and his being. That internship in the Northeast, so 
not one of these ones that did the stint in the Peterhead. I office, did exactly did, yeah. that with Alex Salmond, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Stuart Stevenson. They shared an office in Maiden Street in Peterhead. I remember and, it well. Uh, yeah, and it was. I won't lie. It was. It was. It was a bit of the shock to the system. I'd, I'd you know, kind of in Scotland, not being that much outside of kind of the Central Belt, Glasgow and, and Edinburgh, really. And, and, and came to to Peter Peter Heed and stayed above that that flat in Maiden Street. Um, mm. You know, I had hair down to my my shoulders actually back then. So it was gay. This guy in a sharp suit, young uh, Scottish Asian boy from Gla- the Glasgow accent, mm-hmm. kind of plonked to the middle of Peter Head. I think folk looked at me like, "What's he doing here?" Yeah. <laughs> I think there'll but, be there'll be book, books written about that maiden ministry office. I mean, a it's a conveyor belt of ministers. It is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. I, I learned a lot. I mean, from 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 Alex too. And look, Alex and I have, have got our differences, but you know, he he gave me an opportunity then, and yeah, a lot learned a lot from Alex about. Uh, politics and, and, and from Stuart Stevenson too they shared an office together and there was one uh, dreadful worker he had at the time a chap called Jeff Aberdeen but, uh, well, we'll not say too much about him no yeah. Jeff, Jeff was good but Jeff and I worked together in that office as well so get to know, got to know Jeff and people that uh, I've had a friendship for uh, with uh, to, the, to this very day yeah and would, would you class Alex as a, as a role model as well look Alex Alex taught me a lot um, look, I'm, and I'm, I'm somewhat I suppose you know, after being really Candid. It does upset me in terms of how that relationship, you know, is not uh, has, has gone the way it has gone. Because I did learn a lot from Alex. I mean, uh, I mentioned to you already in this podcast. I heard him speak about the Iraq War, and that's what made me think. Yeah, well, the SNP is the party um, for me. Um, so, and, and, and look, he appointed me uh, in my first ever ministerial job in 2012. Um, so and I was I was also as parliamentary liaison officer before then. So I, I learned a lot uh, from Alex, and that's why I'm disappointed that we are where we are in terms of that relationship. And I always say this uh, publicly: um, you know, I don't have an issue that he's leading another party. Uh, now that's his his prerogative. But look, as somebody who I know believes passionately in independence as he does, the best thing we can do is to make sure that. You know, the Alba Party is not kicking lumps out of the SNP when we are the biggest vehicle that is driving forward independence. Um, you know, we are we are not uh, the enemy. Uh, we are uh, the body that will and uh, the party that will uh, gain Scotland, regain Scotland her her, her independence. So no, that that's, that's a, that is a bit of a sore point, if I'm mm-hmm. if I'm honest. And is he kicking lumps out of the SNP? Well, I think most view. of the press releases I see from Alba seem to be attacking the SNP, and and I don't really understand that. As I say, we are the biggest vehicle. Uh, for independence by quite some distance. I don't know Alba's kind of party membership numbers, but, you know, we are by far uh, the biggest, um, as I say, by quite some distance. So a, a lot of press releases I see tend to be criticising the SNP, and that, to me, is, is, is misfiring. Is there a world where these bridges with Alba can be built to, to go for that really, I guess, the greater good, what you would say, of independence? Look, for me, I suppose the way I look at it is when it comes to winning our independence... Working and doing the work on the ground is going to be the most important. We've got to try to convince people. That's doorstep by doorstep. It's business by business. Um, those conversations that have to be had. I mean, I'll work. You know, virtually. There's there's some exceptions. Obviously, you know, people you know with 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 very extreme views we wouldn't work with. But we'll work with you know those that are in the mainstream in terms of their political views. Um, I'm not going to look at what their membership number is or what uh, political membership card they carry. You know, campaign with just about anybody, but with, with Alex, I think for me, uh, as I've said already, if Alba are absolutely serious about wanting to advance, advance the cause of independence, well, stop fighting on the SNP um, uh, constantly uh, and instead uh, show that uh, you're, you're, you're serious about advancing the cause by, you know, when it comes to criticising the Conservative uh, government and criticising those who want to hold Scotland back. You touched on it earlier, I am... Alex obviously awarded you your first ministerial role in, in 2012. You were the, the first Muslim and the youngest MSP to, to join a Scottish government. That was in the 13th year of Holyrood's existence. Why did it take so long for a Muslim MSP? You, know, you, can look at it, you can look at it in two ways. You, you can look at other parliaments across the world and say if they were nowhere near that position in 13 years. And you, but the others, I, I, I actually happen to take the other view, which is, you know, we, we're, very, we're a very modern parliament and it probably shouldn't have taken as long as that. The truth is, in, in, in Scotland, like any other country, uh, and the parliament, like any other institution, will, of course, have structural barriers in, in the way. And that's not just racial barriers, of course, racial barriers too, uh, barriers for women. 
amount of look think about the amount of women we lost at the last election 2021 because who cited childcare commitments uh, and, and and childcare or you know the the family issues and the not being a family friendly parliament so I, I, I think there's a number of institutional barriers that continue to be in the way. And, and although we've made some advancements, we talk about uh, Muslims. Uh, actually, if you look at where we are now, um, we've also got a Sikh member of the Scottish Parliament. We've got, but, but most of, in fact, not all of the people of colour that we've got come from a kind of Scottish South Asian background. Um, we've never had, uh, and I'm happy to be corrected if I'm wrong, I don't think we've ever had a black Scot as a member of the Scottish Parliament. I don't, think we've, I don't think we've ever had a Jewish member of the Scottish Parliament. I don't think we've ever had somebody who would describe himself as a Chinese Scot, uh, a Japanese Scot. Uh, you know, there's lots of barriers we still have to overcome uh, racially uh, in terms of our Parliament being a proper representation uh, of our of our country. And, and and the onus is absolutely on Parliament, but political parties as well, to stop kind of talking the talk about it. Oh, we want to welcome people, we want to be diverse. I say, what are you actually doing? And that's a challenge for me as party leader in terms of the SNP. What are we actually doing in terms of taking forward positive action to make sure our Parliament is truly, truly representative? I, I want to move on slightly now and, and talk about the last year for you, because it has been huge. A lot's happened since since really last January, let's Ooh. say, but it was mid-February when Nicola Sturgeon announced that she would stand down as First Minister. We all found out through a press conference held at Butte House. How did you find out? And was it a surprise for, for her, her, her cabinet ministers? It was a huge surprise. Uh, the timing of it was a surprise. I think look, most of us probably thought Nicola would stand down before 2026 and give a kind of new leader a couple of years maybe or a year. I think a lot of us thought it would be after a general election. Again, it seemed like a kind of natural point by which to say, right, we fought that election campaign and, and move into 2026 with a new leader uh, in place. And you're right, it was February the 15th that she actually announced her resignation. Um, my wife and I were were on the way back with the kids in the car. Um, we were visiting Nadia's sister in Reading and we were on the kind of long journey back up to, to Dundee where, where we live. And uh, during that journey, because you know, a good, good eight-hour journey or something of, of that effect, um, you know, kids were, I think, fast asleep and Nadia and I were just chatting away. Yeah, what's next? And do you think... And do you think Nicola will resign? If she did, would you go for it? I remember my wife asking me, me going, I remember I was health secretary at the point. I remember saying, and ads, I've got I've got enough stress in my life. I'm not <laughs> sure we need to be even thinking about that. Uh, um, and, and and then lo and behold, to get home, I think it was about quarter to ten or half nine, quarter to ten at night, and Nicola phones. I thought, that's really unusual. She's phoning me and that was Valentine's Day, of course. <laughs> quarter to ten on, on February the fourteenth. So I went to the next room. And yes, yeah, I said, how are you? And I remember her saying, I'm fine, but you're not going to like what I've got to tell you. And I knew immediately what she was about to say. I said, don't say it then. And she said it and, you know, I won't lie, there was there was a few profanities from my end, I think. Um, mainly the shock of it. And, and and that was that. And then I phoned John Swinney <laughs> straight away. said, John. <laughs> she told me she told John, John, what is this? What is she doing that for? John said, look, she's made up her mind. And that's right. And, you know, when I really felt for Nicola was when she said to me, you know, I just want a bit of normality back. She said, I can't see a friend or go for a coffee without my protection officers around me. Everything's got to be scripted, choreographed, the scrutiny on me. And, and I get it. I mean, I now understand that being the position that I'm in. But she had eight years of it. Um, so, yeah, that's it was a total surprise. Total shock. We, um, so the last time we were sitting face-to-face -face was, I think it was maybe day eight or day nine of your mm -hmm. of your tenure as First mm -hmm. Minister, the day before um, the, the the police arrived at, yeah. um, at, at Peter Morrell's door. Do you ever reflect upon that and think how different the last 10 months might have been if you'd been able to use that early stage of your, your premiership to, to, to push forward your policy agenda? Uh -huh. You know, it was a big distraction, obviously. Yeah. Massive, yeah, massive, and no point pretending otherwise. And actually, that week, you're right, because um, I think that was the, the first kind of couple of days of recess, of parliamentary recess in, in, in the Easter break. And, and we thought, yep, this will be the, the point. You get to set your agenda. You've got a kind of almost a two-week free run at it because parliament's not sitting. You know, you get to stamp your authority. Really good visit the Northeast and really set out our priorities around the Northeast and, you know, Scotland's economic uh, potential currently and future potential. Then you're right, the next day, I'll get a call from the permanent secretary saying, you know, I've been authorised by... 
Police Scotland to, to let you know that uh, arrest, uh, sorry, uh, police investigation, uh, the arrest has been made actually at that point. Uh, and it was af after, after, after the fact, I was told about it. And uh, I was shocked, absolute state of shock. And you're absolutely right, a, a complete distraction and, and it's had significant impacts on the party, both in terms of morale, but also I think how we're viewed by the public. And again, I, I'd be fooling your kind of listeners uh, if I pretended, pretended otherwise. I, I don't really go back over and think, well, if that didn't happen, what would it have meant? Because what is the point and the purpose of that? I, I've really just got a job to make sure I set out an agenda. And that's why I have the prospectus. It's why I've got uh, had the programme for government. It's what our budget, I'm sure we'll talk uh, plenty about that. Uh, it, it allows us to be able to talk through what our priorities are. And I do think the message uh, is, 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 is getting out there around, well, this is what the government, uh, the SNP-led Scottish government stands for. This is what Hamza stands for as the First Minister. Um, and I'm able to, to, to really, uh, and I look forward, particularly in a general election year, uh, to driving that message home about what's important in terms of my priorities and the government I lead's priorities. How much of a setback was that at the start? Because Peter Morell was arrested in the start of April, um, Colin Beatty, I think, a week or two later. Mm. And in justice, we're kind of getting over that saga at the start of June, Nicola Sturgeon gets arrested. That's two, three months now into your tenure. And it must have been all you feel like you were talking about for two or three months. It's, it did, actually. It absolutely did feel like that. Uh, you're you're kind of hit the nail uh, on the head. And, and that, that was what was frustrating. <laughs> I think every time we, we, we almost wanted one of these reset moments, I think Colin the news of Colin's arrest came out on the day I was doing our prospectus, uh, if I remember correctly. So, you yeah, know, take out taking a fair bit of time to work through, uh, you know, the, the various aspects of that. Uh, and, and so, look, there's no getting away from it. It, it. it was a distraction. It was difficult, remains difficult um, to deal with. Um, but also, uh, you, you use those moments to also show leadership, I think. And for me, I was never going to shy away from it. There were some people actually who, you know, members of the opposition that would say, oh, God, you, he's doing media every day about this stuff. Do you think his advisor would tell him to, to stop? Well, I thought, oh, is that? I thought, first of all, if the opposition are saying that to me, that I should stop talking, then I should probably keep talking. But secondly, <laughs> uh, the point is that you either have two choices in these, these, these situations. You either kind of just shy away, hide away, don't confront the the obvious challenge, or you show and demonstrate leadership and take it front on, and head on, and, and that's that's what I've uh, always intended to do. Do you ever go to Nicola Sturgeon for for a source of advice or, or, or for support? Is she somebody that you that you rely on often? Yeah, look, I've got so much time for Nicola and and a lot of affection for Nicola because she supported me through the years. I mentioned the story about you know Bashir, and it was Nicola that, that kind of sat me down and and said, "Look, this is a great opportunity for you." Um, she supported me. She's given me good advice. Uh, she also promoted me to to cabinet, which I'm grateful for, and all the experience of that. And give me a really tough job as health secretary, but one that I'm telling you was uh, uh, certainly a, a learning curve and built me, uh, built strength and resilience within me as an individual uh, as well. So look, Nicola and I will, will speak. It's pretty infrequent because you know, I'm busy doing what I'm doing in terms of uh, running uh, the matters of, of, of state as it was. But also I think Nicola's approach has been purposely not to be, trying not to kind of say, this is what I think you should be doing and this is what my advice, I think she's quite happy. Uh, for 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 myself as first minister, but also my government colleagues to chart our own course and chart our own path. So I know she's always there. I know if I pick up the phone and send her a message, um, she'll 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 always make herself available for a, a call or a chat. But I think also it's important that uh, as first minister, I chart my own course. Do you think the party has successfully reset now? You've got a new chief executive. You put much of the last ten months behind you. Are you on a a firmer footing now, or is there still some challenges ahead? Look, there's, there's still challenges ahead. I think absolutely we've been able to to, to uh, make sure that our voice is, is getting heard out with uh, the challenges of, of the police investigation. Um, and I think we've got a really good team to help us do that. I think Stephen Flynn, who's well known in, in these parts, of course, I think Stephen Flynn uh, and Mary Black, plus the, the, the whole team down in Westminster, incredible job getting Scotland's voice heard. I think the team up here, the cabinet, uh, I'm still uh, saying to them, uh, you know, let's all make sure that uh, every single cabinet minister is getting out there, is known to people. It's, it's not just a one-man show here. I don't intend 
of course I'll lead from the front that's my job to do as First Minister but I expect everybody in this team uh, to make sure that they are um, uh, uh, visible and at the forefront uh, because I don't, I don't want it to be just a one, one man show a one man band uh, the SNP so I, I do think that and I think the launch that we did on Friday in terms of the general election uh, launch in, in, in Glasgow is a good demonstration and, and, and that week actually on the Monday uh, a week ago I was in Glasgow University doing an economy speech I think again the more and more uh, that we talk about policy and substance and our messaging the more hopefully people uh, above and beyond these challenging issues look at the SNP and say yeah, you know what actually their values are our values. And just before we kind of talk about some of these more specific issues um, let's talk about October a difficult month um, on many accounts. You've been in the job for six months by this point. You'd already faced a myriad of challenges, really. Um, and it was the 9th of October, actually, when you spoke to the media about your in-laws being um, trapped in Gaza. You know, how difficult was it for you to kind of balance the day job with also these really unfathomable personal issues, which, you know, must have been taking up so much, mm. you know, of, of your emotions, of your mental capacity? Yeah, I think that those kind of four weeks where my mother-in-law and father-in-law were in Gaza are probably amongst the, the lowest four weeks of my life and certainly of Nadia's life. Uh, they were difficult, tough, because day by day we just didn't know whether they would survive. That's the truth of the matter. But we had to try to give them some kind of hope. And, you know, we had so many difficult moments. You know, my, I was at a party conference in Aberdeen, you know, and I got a call at one in the morning from mother-in-law saying that they, their neighbour had been told to evacuate because they were going to get hit. And so that meant that they were going to end up, their house would end up being impacted and affected and they were just wandering the streets at one in the morning. Now it turned out that that wasn't the case and again, these things in a war zone, you know, um, messages get lost. But, um, and, and then of course I did my speech on, during conference and an hour later, I uh, got a call again from mother-in-law saying that she had been hit. Now luckily, I say luckily for them, they hadn't been directly hit, but unfortunately, Somebody in the neighbourhood had been hit and, and the blast from that strike had knocked out their windows, their doors and everything. And so day by day, we just didn't know. And truthfully, trying to support Nadia, as well as my, my in-laws, but trying to support Nadia to say, you know, your parents will, will be fine in reality, not knowing if that was going to be the case uh, or not. And there was times when I, I just didn't think we would probably see them again. Um, and, and then obviously doing the job here, which is a job that's all-consuming, while at the same time trying to navigate the kind of geopolitics internationally but domestically because what I didn't want, I'm very conscious I'm, you know, the first Muslim first minister, I'm, you know, the first minister who's got family in Gaza. I didn't want other communities such as, for example, a Jewish community who'd also been terribly impacted by those atrocious attacks on October the 7th. I didn't want them to feel that there wasn't somebody there who stands alongside them through the heart and the pain and the grief that they're feeling. So uh, it, it was difficult uh, for me personally, professionally, but uh, I would say those four weeks were, were, were amongst uh, the lowest that uh, I've ever uh, had. How did how did you cope, I mean, putting on the brave face in front of camera during those four weeks? I think you had the, the conference in Aberdeen, as you mentioned, mm. there's a lot going on around the WhatsApp and, and code messages and so on. How were you able to, I guess, just deal with, deal with the cameras on a daily basis knowing that, I mean, well, you didn't know what was happening? <clears throat> um, I think it was just trying to be as upfront and honest and it was a very emotional time. I mean, I think more interviews during that period that, that I was shedding tears than, than ever in my career. Um, so I took the approach from day one that I'm just going to be really upfront and honest um, in my dealing uh, of this uh, situation and try to just be empathetic, which, you know, I think for me comes very naturally. I mean, it's, it's been the way I've done my politics and who I am, I hope as an individual, let alone my politics, um, and try to just show that empathy and not see it as a vulnerability, <coughs> excuse me, but see it as a strength. Um, and, and, and also, look, at had a wonderful team, you know, understanding what I was going through, Deputy First Minister, Cabinet, Ministers, Party colleagues, all making sure they rallied right in behind me, picked up where they needed to pick up. But look, you just also got to just get on with it. Party conference is a great example of that. You've got to just... Do what you need to do. Um, support your family as best you possibly can throughout it. Um, and, and, and the team were excellent as well. You know, they understood if I needed... You know, I, 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 there was often a time when I was in the middle of a meeting, but I saw my phone. I would have my phone out and I'd say to the people in the meeting, look, I would normally not have my phone here, but there's one call. If it comes from my mother-in-law, guys, I'm going to take it no matter what. And, and, and actually, it was a business engagement 
you know, at the party conference and, and, and that call and a call came and they were absolutely understanding. So I think people understood as well and the messages I got and to this day still get from people wishing me and my family well, um, are really heartwarming indeed. Yeah, I think I think you showed remarkable courage in that time. And okay. I just I can imagine the personal stress. I mean, like, you know, a set piece event like a conference speech mm. would normally take up one hundred percent of your yeah. Um, of your attention, um, so it must be must mean really difficult to. Uh, uh, I'm just un- uh, trying to understand how how do you have to compartmentalise it to a degree and, and go into kind of first minister mode, if you pardon the expression. And I, I never viewed it like that way. I always viewed that my response to that situation was all part of me, both as a human being, but also as first minister. I think people want their first minister to be somebody who speaks out on global issues. I think they want their first minister to be somebody who's empathetic. Um, I think they want the First Minister to be somebody who understands their own personal grief. So for me, um, you'll notice obviously in my conference speech, the first section was all about Gaza and our response to Gaza. Um, and, and ultimately, whatever I do in politics, I want it to be guided by those values of compassion, of justice, of fairness. Um, and, and I just approached the Gaza situation and continued to approach it in that vein. And, and that's the same for domestic policy. So I don't, actually, it wasn't really a case of compartmentalising it. I'm not sure that's as easy to do as people kind of suggest mm. either. Uh, it was just a case of doing what's necessary and bringing those values to, to your politics as much as it, to your personal life. It was the 5th of fifth of November when you were reunited with your in-laws. How did that feel? That was an incredible feeling. Actually, I've got, I've got a video of the moment they walked in uh, as well, which I've never, never shared. It's a very kind of personal yeah. moment for our family. And we just didn't believe it until we saw them come in the room. But, you, you know, you just hear... I mean, everybody in that video almost kind of collapses to the floor because they just... that The emotion um, of being of seeing them again because, I mean, genuinely, I think a lot of people in our wider family just thought we would never see them again. So it was an incredible, incredibly powerful moment. Um, but, you know, they, they are still traumatised. Mother-in-law especially. Mother-in-law really carries a lot of anger, frustration, upset. She can't understand why the world isn't really doing anything. Um, so they, they are really traumatised. And, and of course, Nadia still has family there. Her brother is still there. Her gran, who's 93, who she's very close to, is still there. Her stepmom is still there, who she's close to. Her aunties and uncles are still there. Again, these are people she would visit every single year in Gaza. My wife used to go every single year to Gaza uh, before the blockade. So these are people she all grew up with, knows well. Um, so every day she's still watching the news and still carrying their heart and their and their pain. And that's why I continued to call. It's not the only reason, of course, but I continued to call for an immediate ceasefire because far too many children, far too many women, and far too many innocent men uh, have have lost their lives. And you know, th- there is there is no solution in war. I have to say, uh, there is no solution in war, uh, and that's why we have to 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 get you know get that immediate ceasefire and deal with the root cause of the problem. That root cause of that problem actually over many decades has not changed. That root cause continues to be that we made promises to 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 to, to two, you know, communities here. We made a promise that there would be an Israeli state and we promised that there should be a Palestinian state, a two state solution. We only ever fulfilled one side of that equation without fulfilling the right of a Palestinian state. And until we do that, I'm afraid we'll continue to see these cycles of violence. Um, so we need that immediate ceasefire now, I think, more than we've needed it ever before. So that been your, your biggest challenge of your tenure so far, do you think? Just just that month of October and dealing with everything. I mean, there has been a lot. No, no. I mean, for me, as I say, that was probably the, the lowest month of, of, my, of my life, uh, politically, professionally, whichever way you wish to, to, to describe it. So I did find that, that four weeks incredibly difficult. Um, yeah, so, so by, by quite some distance, yes. Um, you know, we've mentioned issues in police investigations, so on. You kind of pale into insignificance in comparison to whether or not your mother-in-law and father-in-law are going to live or not. You know, the next day, whether they survive or whether they get killed in an airstrike, these are matters of life and death. And uh, yeah, by, by far the most difficult period of, uh, yeah, of you, my life. You've dealt with a lot of on, on a personal level um, and things out with your control, such as the arrests, as we've said. There's also been a lot going on on the political level, on the policy level too. One of your pledges at the start was to to reset this relationship with business. Mm. Do you feel you're making any ground on that? 
I definitely think we're making ground in it. Uh, by the way, it's a, it's a phase that's not going to be a light switch that you turn off and say, by the way, the, the relationship is now, is now reset. Well, you've got to work hard at the reset, and there's going to be bumps along 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 the road, and I'm sure we'll, we'll certainly explore some of that. But just today, I was with Offshore Energies UK. We had some of the biggest oil and gas executives around the table. Um, we had uh, colleagues in, that are involved in renewables. And of course, many oil and gas uh, companies are involved in renewables themselves in terms of joint ventures and investments that they're making. And it was a really open discussion, a, a great discussion. Actually, I'm really grateful to David uh, Whitehouse and, and Jenny Standing and the team at, at uh, OEUK, who were uh, really, those around the table making the point that they want to continue to be partners in the relationship. And that doesn't mean we agree with everything because we very clearly won't. But what they want from us is, you know, they want a, an open door in terms of being able to discuss and engage their concerns. And I said, look, every single uh, organisation, business, um, should be able to, to feel that they're getting appropriate access to, to government. So, so you know, we agree on that. And we actually agree in the end destination. We agree that there has to be a just transition to net zero. The disagreement may come in terms of the pace or how quickly and so on. So, so that, that was just one meeting that's a demonstration of, 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 of the positive relationship. Um, but it will take time. And as I say, there will be bumps in the road, uh, I don't doubt. Um, but no, I'm very keen to make sure that we continue to reset that uh, relationship and move forward with it. You're very clear about <clears throat> the need for that reset right at the start of your tenure. Is that an acknowledgement that your things weren't going well under your predecessor? And, and was she anti-business? Maybe not no, on no, purpose, she, but... No, no, Nicola definitely wasn't, wasn't anti-business. And, and you can... And I get why I asked the question about my predecessor, but look, ultimately, I've been in government for 11 and a half years. I've got to also uh, say, say that I've got role and responsibility, as have other government ministers and cabinet secretaries that have been in government for a period of years. We've all got to acknowledge that somewhere along the way, uh, business felt that they weren't being listened to adequately, and my job is, as First Minister to make sure uh, that is reset, and that's what they were that's what business was calling for. That's why we have the New Deal, new deal for Business Group. Um, we're, again, making progress. I'm not going to doubt for a minute that there's not going to be bumps in the road. There absolutely will be. Um, but as long as we can keep that engagement going, moving forward, uh, I think is really going to be incredibly important. And I think there's a lot we can point to in terms of how we're working with business, doing things differently with business. Uh, and we'll continue along that journey. I think, um, you know, if I could remark on that, I, th I think there has been a step change in terms of the volume of engagement with business. We've yeah. certainly seen it in the northeast of Scotland. Uh, and, you know, it's something we're really grateful for. I think my challenge is, you know, you're engaging with business. Are you listening mm. with business? I think the income tax mm -hmm. uh, going into the into the last budget is an example. You had eight business groups speaking with one voice on the issue, mm. and, you, and you decided to, to to go against them. So, you know, what can you do to yeah. reassure business that you are actually listening to their? I concerns? think that's a really fair challenge. I think it's a really fair challenge. Uh, but what I would say is is listening and engaging doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything. We're not. So let's just from the beginning say there's going to be differences in terms of your uh, what you want government to to bring forward in terms of policy and what I, what I will do in terms of policy. But a couple of things. First of all, we shouldn't just be engaging. I'm pleased to hear that, that you, you feel there's been a step uh, up in terms of engagement and visibility. I also want to make sure that business genuinely feels that they are uh, assisting us in relation to policy development around the economy and so on and so forth. If I take income tax as, 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 as an example, look, these decisions are never taken lightly. You know, it's not a, you know, it's not a government, it's not a light government decision to take or one that you take off the cuff around taxation, particularly when you know you're you're going into an election year. We all know 2024 is an election year. Um, but we did so partly because of the constraints that we have of over our budget. There's no denying our budget is a fixed, you know, mainly a fixed budget. We've got uh, income tax, and we'll touch upon that uh, in a second. Um, we've got limited borrowing powers. And therefore, if we wanted to do the things that we want to do in relation to uplifts to the NHS, education, uh, trans, uh, uh, justice, uh, justice, fire, police, fire, what we want to do around transport, active travel. All these things require uh, money. And um, when we have such limitations on our powers, um, varying income tax, or as we did, introducing a new band, uh, can help us uh, to achieve all of what we want to achieve, make Scotland an attractive place. What we're doing is really asking those who are the 5% highest earners, that includes by the way, people like me who are on a first minister's salary, uh, to pay that little bit more, but for it, you get a lot more. You know, we get things that others in the rest of the UK don't get. We get free university education, some of the world, but the, you know, the best universities in the world. You know, we don't pay a single penny for our prescriptions. And this is what we do, we do so evidence-based. 
this is the final point I'd make on this, is that people have been saying to, to, to me and the government for years, that, look, if the SNP is on a progressive journey of taxation, then you're going to stop people, people are not going to come to Scotland. Um, the stats just show that manifestly is not true. You know, NRS, uh, NRS stats, 2021, we have a net positive inflow migration of 10,000, or almost 10,000. More people are coming to Scotland than leaving Scotland in terms of those statistics. And that, to me, there's got to be a reason for that. And I think that is because there's opportunity up here. I think it's because we offer things like free tuition uh, or no tuition uh, when it comes to university. I think it's things like the baby box, prescription charges, childcare, uh, free personal care, bus travel uh, for under 22s, over 60s, people with disabilities. All these things make a massive difference. But if those stats were to change, so if there was evidence coming across your desk that it was having an impact, people were leaving the car or choosing not to locate it. Would you look again at it? Look, it's, it's, it will all, behaviour impacts will always be uh, uh, considered as part of any income tax decision. Be, you, know, you would be a, a foolish government not to look at um, what the behavioural impacts might well be uh, in relation to any taxation decision. And, and the other thing I'd say, and I've said this very openly from the beginning, what the UK government does in relation to taxation is something we've also got to keep an eye on because, you know, there, if, if there is ever a point that such a divergence would cause that kind of exodus from Scotland, then we've got to be aware of that. But as I keep saying, I mean, we did the work in advance of introducing uh, this this uh, income tax uh, bracket in relation to uh, asking the questions around behavioural impact. And by the way, you're never going to get an assessment that says, if you do this, here's exactly how many people will leave and this is exactly how many people will come. Look, you'll get a kind of analysis of behavioural impact and, and, and what that behavioural impact could be. And you've always got to just make sure you're weighing that up. Just moving on slightly, um, mm -hmm. this summer um, is due to be a refreshed energy strategy. Will the, the SNP's presumption against oil and gas remain in this strategy? So I'd love to give you an exclusive uh, in terms of what will be uh, in the strategy, but you'll, you'll forgive me, the appropriate thing, of course, will be to update Parliament uh, in due course in terms of that strategy. Uh, but for me, uh, actually, the presumption uh, is the right starting place. Uh, the position that we have is the right starting place because everybody and this includes the individuals I was talking to earlier this afternoon in the oil and gas industry, everybody uh, uh, understands the severity of the climate crisis. There's nobody around that table that I spoke to, the Shells, the BPs, nobody around that table that's denying the climate crisis or the scale of that climate crisis. So we're all absolutely in agreement of the scale and the nature of that climate crisis. So therefore, um, and we all are also in agreement that when it comes to the burning of fossil fuels, there's a, a significant impact on that climate crisis and only worsening that climate crisis. So there's no disagreement on these two positions. So therefore, actually having an evidence base for why you're extracting more oil and gas is, is really important. And saying that this is beneficial because of our energy security, because of workers in terms of our just transition, and we're able to do it within our climate compatibility obligations. Um, but, you know, I think that's a really sensible place to start. So I'm not in the position in the Scottish government, and we haven't been in the position of saying... You know, no oil and gas licenses ever, ever uh, again, because the, the transition has to be managed. This is a very strong message coming from we at UK today, that it has to be a controlled, managed and just transition. And that's what came, came out of COP28 as well. And, and look, we're in agreement with that. So we can kind of argue about what's on the, on the, in the strategy and the wording that's used. And I think it's fine to have that debate and discussion. I think as a government, what I'm very, very keen uh, to do is say, look, for me, uh, oil and gas, the oil and gas industry has been very, very good for Scotland in terms of our economic success, in terms of the, the jobs it has created, in terms of our GVA. And I see, actually, the oil and gas industry as being partners in unleashing a renewable potential. They've got deep pockets, they're able to leverage in the in private investment. But my job to them, and this is not a surprise, is to challenge them to say, well, put your money where your mouth is. Let's move this transition as quickly as possible, let's unleash and unlock um, that renewable potential. Let's do it together where we can. Um, and, and let's just get round to it and, and move that pace. And uh, in fairness to those around the table, they were really up for that challenge. That uh, <clears throat> draft energy strategy was also published prior to you, to you taking on the role as First Minister. There's been some change politically in the cabinet since then. Is the current cabinet aligned behind that presumption against oil and gas at the moment? Yeah, I mean, the cabinet speaks as government speaks as, as one voice, and, and the current policy is uh, as as you've articulated it. Um, but as I've uh, already said, for me, um, to, to Finlay's point, 
um, to me, is the right starting place. Um, but what, we lo- what I absolutely accept, and I heard this again today, that investor confidence is really important. I'm always happy to speak to uh, anybody who's looking to invest in Scotland to say, look, Scotland is going to do this through a, a managed, just transition. Nobody in the Scottish government is saying that you turn off the taps today, tomorrow, overnight. It's going to be a transition over decades. And I want Scotland to be at the forefront of that. I think if Scotland is the blueprint of how you do that, so you go from being the, the, the oil and gas capital of Europe to the net zero capital of Europe, and if we can do that, what a blueprint for the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. No, it's definitely an aspiration, I think, mm-hmm. that, that we all share. Where do you sit on the counter-argument about, you know, well, if we're not producing ourselves, if we import more oil and gas, it could potentially increase our carbon emissions. You know, offshoring our offshore emissions isn't really helping in the grand scheme of things. Okay, Where do you sit on that argument? No, no, look, I, th- I think the argument uh, obviously has some validity, but if you take, um, you know, uh, somewhere like Rosebank as an example, look, the majority of what's been produced from Rosebank will go overseas and then potentially be, some of it might well be back imported um, uh, back to back to Scotland and the UK. Um, but it's, it's, it's uh, I would argue from a Scottish and UK perspective, isn't necessarily going to help us massively in terms of our, 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 our energy security, and that's why um, I uh, vocalise my concern uh, about that uh, licence being, being being approved. So I think we've got to really take an evidence-based um, analysis uh, of each case-by-case basis, each, each licence on a case-by-case uh, basis. That's why my position isn't that, by the way, there should be no uh, new oil and gas licences ever in the future at all. Uh, but we've got to look at three things. We've got to look at our climate obligations first and foremost. We've got to ask the question about workers and just transition because th- there is no transition that is just that leaves tens of thousands of workers, particularly in the northeast, in the scrap heap. And then energy security. And um, we've got to ask these questions and we've got to strengthen the climate compatibility checks, checkpoints, uh, which is a call that we've made uh, for many, many years now. Mm. And if we're, if we're, if, if we're going with... An evidence based the North Sea Transition Authority says domestically produced gas is up to four times cleaner than imported LNG. Mm. So, would you favour domestically produced gas over imported LNG? Uh, look again, more broadly, look again where we can reduce our importation because of the the, the carbon implications of that. Then, then of course uh, we should be uh, favourable in terms of that consideration. And that's why I say to you, uh, these decisions should be made on a case by case basis. By the way, the decisions are not made by me, as you know; they're, they're made by. <laughs> Uh, the UK government and I think the the frustration for me is we've currently got a UK government that doesn't really want to engage in this issue around the just transition in any meaningful way uh, it's doing it in a kind of political with a lot of political slogans there's going to be a change of government in, in, in 2024 that uh, I don't doubt uh, in the slightest um, and uh, my offer to Keir Starmer Ted Miliband um, who, who who drives their energy policy is look come and speak to us in advance of a general election um, let's work together so that we can unleash the potential of uh, Scotland's renewable sector and that's got to be a just transition. Uh, let's do that in a way that gives the investors the confidence they need to invest now in Scotland uh, and, and that investment, uh, we'll see the return, uh, we'll see we'll see a great economic return for that in the years and the decades to come. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, just just one follow-up, obviously your, your, your industrial strategy that you announced last week, there was talk about a £20 million capital mm-hmm. fund funded by the oil and gas industry. Does that include revenues from Campbell and Rosebank? 20 billion. 20 billion, um, sorry. Uh, for yeah. 20 million, take, take us too, too far. Um, 20 billion. Um, in terms of oil and gas revenues, look, um, we're not talking about going back on licences that are already uh, been granted. Um, but what 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 are, what are an, inc- an incredible way to use that revenue by making sure that it powers the just transition to net zero? To net zero. I think that's the appropriate way to use uh, revenue uh, from, from from oil and gas, um, so inevitably, as I say, we're not going to to, to rip up licences that, that, that are already there uh, in existence. Um, but as I say, the best way I think to use those revenues is to help to 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 to, to fund uh, net zero. And just before we, we kind of wrap things up here, um, a quick question on independence. When the results were announced that you were to become First Minister... There's no such thing as a quick question on independence, but please... <laughs> well, you <laughs> said, rest. as the 14th leader of this great party, we will deliver independence for Scotland together as a team. Do you honestly feel, 10 months on, giving polling figures we're seeing, such as today when Labour are one seat off the SNP in Scotland, that you are moving that goal forward? Uh, that is absolutely the intention, of course, of mine is to move that... 
uh, go forward in the SNP and membership, uh, the membership of the SNP should judge me uh, on uh, being able to move that goal uh, forward. Uh, the answer to your question is, is absolutely, and I'll tell you why, because you've spent a fair considerable amount of this podcast, understandably so, asking me about the challenges that I faced. And I think we're all in agreement they have been pretty numerous uh, over the last 10 months. Uh, notwithstanding that, support for independence is rock solid. 50%, there or thereabouts, sometimes above 50%, sometimes slightly below 50%. And that, to me, tells me we've got a rock-solid foundation. This general election is a real opportunity, um, and, and and I only hypothecate on on winning. And for me, there's a massive opportunity, and particularly relevant to the northeast of Scotland, uh, for, for, for a few things. First and foremost, uh, for those that do want to see the back of the Conservatives and... That is, I think, the vast overwhelming majority of the public after 13 and a half years of utter chaos that they've inflicted, not just in Scotland, but the, the whole of the UK. Well, the only way to do that in Scotland is to vote for the SNP. We're, we are second place in every single Conservative seat in the country, including those in the North East. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is, when it comes to the general election, Keir Starmer is going to be the next Prime Minister of the UK. 20, 25 points ahead of the polls. Let's not pretend otherwise. Um, so he doesn't need Scotland to win. That allows those who believe in independence to vote for what they believe in, and others, even if you don't support independence. If you want Scotland's voice heard at Westminster, well, the SN that is what the SNP does. That's our, our, our uh, uh, really our, our, our uh, reason d'etre is to advance Scotland. And, you know, you may not agree with everything the SNP does, but you cannot deny that we constantly uh, talk about Scotland, talk up Scotland, bang the drum for Scotland to make sure Scotland's voice is heard. So there's a massive opportunity uh, in the general election for people to do that. And, and, and for those who believe in independence, it's very simple. If the SNP is winning, if we're advancing, then the cause of independence is winning and advancing. What would you say to uh, a North Sea oil worker who might be fearful of a Prime Minister Keir Starmer and a First Minister Hamza Youssef? Collectively running our government. Look, I, I won't speak to what you should think about Keir Starmer as Prime Minister because, look, I think um, uh, there'll be plenty uh, to be worried about in terms of, of, of Keir Starmer as Prime Minister. What I can say to them is uh, I not only value what they're doing at the moment, I believe they've got massive potential uh, to help us to empower, to, 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 to power on uh, the just transition to, to net zero. So, look, the oil and gas industry is going to continue to be with Scotland, not just for years, but for decades uh, to come. But also, uh, we know that those skills are so transferable uh, into into renewable technologies. And I saw that when I visited Verloom earlier today. In fact, founded by uh, two individuals who uh, were, of course, previously in oil and gas um, and, and, and now helping us to drive forward uh, Scotland's renewable and the world's actually renewable uh, potential as well. So I think there's massive opportunity if you're an uh, oil and gas worker in the Northeast um, to know that we value the industry but we also value it not just for its, what it's providing currently, but actually you will be a worker uh, for the future of Scotland's uh, net zero ambitions. Mm -hmm. And on the, on, the, on the Just Transition Fund, just, just, just finally, um, it looked like from, from, from the budget announcement that the funding for it's falling back from 50 million to 12.5 million in the year ahead. Um, are we putting our money where our mouth is when it comes to the Just Transition? No, well, we are. We absolutely are. Look, th th there's always going to be a phased approach to the Just Transition and we can only do, as I've already said, uh, what uh, we can within the budget that we're given by the UK government. And when it comes to capital, for example, we're looking at a 10% cut over the next five years. When it comes to resource, our budget has been cut uh, over the years uh, in, in, in real terms and is really difficult, really challenging. Um, so we'll do what we can. Uh, in the budget, of course, you would have seen the announcement around uh, 66.9 million, I think it was, in relation uh, to the 500 million uh, that I've announced uh, over the coming period uh, for anchoring supply chain. And, and the North East in particular will benefit from that. So this is the first down payment uh, on that particular investment. So I'm very confident of our investment in relation to not just the just transition, uh, but importantly, the supply chain that's required to, to power that forward. Would you accept the rollout's been slow so far? No, no, I wouldn't. I mean, one of the first announcements I made in that visit to the northeast, of course, was to put additional money towards that just transition fund. Um, and and uh, I don't know uh, any other country that is putting uh, money uh, towards the just transition fund uh, in the way that we are. Um, certainly no other uh, country in, in, in the UK is committed as we are to that just transition. First Minister, thank you ever so much for joining us. Just some, some quick-fire questions. Oh, those ones I hate some the most. quick-fire questions. Um, <laughs> before we go, who is, is the most difficult politician you've had to debate against? The one that the most difficult I've had to debate against? I'll tell you, as, as Minister, 
the one that you hated seeing in the order papers was the business bulletin, if you were you're to get a question from, was the wonderful, the late and great Margot MacDonald, because she would really tear you apart <laughs> if you didn't have the right answer. She was not only incredibly clever, uh, of course, as, as, as she was, but she had a, just the a sharpest wit uh, about her. So I remember being a minister and when I saw Margot MacDonald's name in the paper going... Right, I'm in for it now. So uh, she definitely was the was was the most difficult I think I ever uh, had to had to deal with in my time. What's your favourite part of Scotland? Oh come on, you can't ask me that. <laughs> you can't possibly ask me that. I mean, other than of course uh, my constituency and Glasgow Pollock, um, it's hard for me to say. I mean, Scotland genuinely is, uh, is stunning, uh, and I and I love it. But no, I can't. I don't think I've and I got a favourite. I've got a place that's very sentimental to me, then I'll go with that. And, and that's um, Loch Fiscali, actually, of all places, up near Pitlochry, because um, it's near where my wife and I uh, went on our first date. So yeah. that's one that's um, that's one that uh, is quite uh, quite sentimental and quite uh, important to me. But yeah, I'm not going to fall for your trap. <laughs> is that wee street, Peterhead, not a contender, no? <laughs> <laughs> Maiden Street. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's what I'm saying. So many parts of Scotland mean so much. Uh, to me, for sure. What's your favourite food? Oh, man, this is another good question. Um, so uh, my absolute favourite food is uh, something called nachari chicken. So achari is quite a spicy uh, curry that's made uh, with uh, kind of pickled mango and, and so on. I'm, I'm probably not selling it, but it's really <laughs> one of my favourites. And then the one I like to cook the most, which, I, which people seem to enjoy that I make and I quite like, is a lamb shawarma. So I tend to make that for my shoulder of, of, of lamb with all the spices and slow cooked. I make my own yogurts and sauces and seasonings <laughs> for it as well. So there's two. If you were to make a, a lamb shawarma for three opposition politicians, who who would you why? make it for? Why are you doing this uh, to me? I don't, I don't know why you're doing this to me. Three opposition politicians, uh, and they can be in any parliament and so on. Uh, so in any parliament in the United Kingdom. Any parliament in the United <laughs> Kingdom. Ah, you got me. So... Um, Taking that, I really uh, do have a lot of time for Mark Drakeford, so I like him, so I'd like to invite him. Um, I really, uh, and I've already had lunch with her, but I really like Michelle O'Neill as well, so an opposition politician. And then in the Scottish Parliament, if I was to choose uh, an opposition member that I would invite around for that lamb, shawarma, uh, it would probably be Foyso Chaudhry because he has some great stories, um, some that definitely cannot be told on camera or on this podcast, and he's a heck of a good laugh, as well as, by the way, believe it or not, a very good cook, so I'm sure he'd be willing to bring a dish. Um, who is your favourite Scottish football linesman? <laughs> <laughs> There's this one guy <laughs> called Douglas Ross, who I think gets every call right now. Uh, I don't have a favourite uh, linesman or referee. Is there any football fan who has a favourite referee? Or a favourite We quite like John Underhill in the North East. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> is that right? Um, which opposition politician do you admire the most? Do you know, um, look, I, I genuinely uh, admire a lot of my colleagues in politics, regardless of which political party uh, they're in, um, because we all give up and sacrifice a lot of time with our family and friends and, 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 and you know, high degree of public scrutiny in terms of our role. Um, which one do I admire uh, the most? So I think in terms of opposition, probably have the most admiration in the Scottish Parliament um, for somebody like Pam Duncan Glancy. I think mm -hmm. she made history. Um, I think she's somebody that I am inspired by in terms of what she's achieved. I think she is unapologetically her. Um, and I think she absolutely um, stands up, gives a voice to those people in Scotland with a disability um, and, 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 and uh, have lived with a disability their, their whole lives in a way that many of us have never been able to do. So um, I really admire her uh, quite, quite a lot. I disagree with her on, on many occasions, but I admire her quite a lot. And just lastly, um, if you could turn the clock back and do something different and your first 300 or so days is... As First Minister, what would that be? There you go, 300 odd days it's been. Um, I, don't, I don't know uh, if there is actually anything that I would do necessarily uh, hugely differently. 
because and I, I, by the way, I'm not a big one for regret. Um, I don't get me wrong. I think if you've done something uh, that 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 that, that uh, you should have done differently, you should be upfront about that. You should apologise for this hurt. I think if I could go back slightly earlier than 300 days, um, I think the election contest that we took part in um, didn't wasn't always. Uh, I think the best in terms of party morale. I think it's fair to say, yeah. and I think all of us who were involved in that contest, although we, you know, you know certainly Kate and I, um, you know, continue to have a, a friendship. Um, you know, perhaps there was times where uh, we could have uh, approached that contest slightly, slightly differently. I think she would probably say the same, and I think I would slightly say the same. So maybe it's a bit of a. Uh, a bit of a cheat in terms of your answer. It was slightly before those 300 days, but the election contest, I think, we probably could have handled slightly better. First Minister, thank you again for joining us on Chamber Talk. Thank you also to the Policy Director at Aberdeen and Grampian Chamber of Commerce, Ryan Creighton. I've been your host, Finlay Jack, and please do join me next time on Chamber Talk, where we'll be joined by one of the men looking to take the First Minister's job in the coming years, Anas Sarwar. We'll see you then. Mm -hmm.